thank you for, uh, for coming out today. Um, this is going to be uh, a very interesting conversation with uh, Israel's ambassador to the United States. <laughs> oh, wait, that's the next one. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I always, okay. I'm always getting them confused. It's unbelievable. Um, Actually, uh, our, our guest today is most often confused with the mayor of Washington. People often are coming up to him complaining about garbage collection. He does have an uncanny appearance to Adrian Fenty. But this is, in fact, the ambassador from the United Arab Emirates, Yusuf Al-Ataiba, who is uh, obviously a good friend of the Aspen Institute, and I think we'll hear a little bit about that. Uh, I won't go into the, the lengthy uh, bio. He's a very accomplished young man. Um, he is... Uh, uh, for, for many years, I think, before you came to Washington, you were foreign policy advisor, national security advisor to the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. Um, he is uh, someone I've gotten to know quite well in, in Washington. Um, he's a rather over-enthusiastic Georgetown basketball fan. Um, but especially I don't, when they're good. Especially when they're good. He's a fly-by-night one. Um, but we're going to jump right into this in this uh, kind of odds. I feel like we're like some sort of multi-ethnic folk duo <laughs> sitting in these chairs like this. We're going to someone's do... going to bring out a banjo. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm afraid like a banjo playing is going to break out in this setting. Um, but it's okay because Aspen's about bringing people together. Um, let me. Um, I, I thought we would start with something rather basic before we move into some of the hot button issues uh, uh, of the day, and, and that is there. There. There is a kind of confusion sometimes about what exactly is the United Arab Emirates. Uh, how is it formed and how many emirates are there and how they are governed and, and how uh, the UAE is different from Saudi Arabia, say. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could, in uh, a minute and a half, um, give us the entire history of your country. Absolutely. Thank you. You're giving me way too much time. Yeah. Uh, first it's a new me, country. First, let me start off by thanking everyone for coming. Thank you, Jeff, for uh, organizing this. Uh, I thought I was coming here really to, I didn't know anything about this interview. I was actually looking for a place that's showing the World Cup. So they say, go to Meadows Restaurant. <laughs> you get, they're showing the World Cup and you get free lunch. So I was, under, I was led here under false pretenses. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about the UAE. Um, basically, it's a small federation. It's about the size of the state of Maine. I'll try to make analogies to U.S. so people can understand. It's about the size of the state of Maine, composed of about seven different emirates, which until 1971 were independent. And in 1971, uh, Sheikh Zayed, our late president, had the idea of uniting them because he found that a stronger federation would be a much more beneficial entity than having small, seven small, weaker uh, statements. So in 1971, we've merged and formed the United Arab Emirates and it is the only successful federation in the Middle East until today. Uh, and not unlike the United States, we have a federal system and a local system of government, kind of like the state system and the federal system here in the U.S. Uh, foreign policy, security, energy policy are always driven at the federal level, but economy, policing, and various civilian and municipal events are usually driven by the local level. So it's still a kind of a harmony between the two systems of government, federal and local. But there's a lot, I think, that the UAE can be proud of. Uh, one, for example, we have one of the most advanced um, compositions of women's rights and movements of women's rights. In today, today in the UAE, college enrollment in all of our universities is over 74% female. Um, and our public workforce, 
64% of the public workforce in the UAE are women. Uh, and there's something that it's usually not well understood in the Middle East, but I think in the UAE it's kind of leading the way and it's something that we're very proud of and I think more people need to know about it. Uh, I can happily go into more, but I, I prefer we sort of... You no, that was the easy question. Now yeah. let me start with yeah. the hard ones. Um, the, this isn't actually a, a hard one, but I, I do want you to come back to this. Saudi Arabia is the 800-pound gorilla of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, talk about this in, in very specific ways. How are you different than Saudi Arabia? And talk about it in the application of Islam. Talk about it in terms of women. Talk about it in, in terms of uh, your positions on various issues, including the peace process. Well, as the 800-pound gorilla in the region, that is obviously what most people turn to and use that as a benchmark. In Saudi Arabia, it's a very, very different system of government. And society is far more influenced by religious issues and religious thought. It is far less secular than most countries in the region, and unfortunately we usually get, we become uh, deemed guilty by association, and people have a kind of monolithic view of the region. People tend to think in the entire Middle East, women cannot drive, or in the entire Middle East, women must cover up. And these are absolutely not true. In Saudi Arabia, there is a much stronger influence of religious issues and it relates only to Saudi Arabia. I can't sit here and criticize or uh, critique each country's policies, but the UAE is very different. The UAE, I believe, is by far the most moderate, liberal, and modern society in the Middle East. And, and anyone who's been there can attest to what the, th what the things the UAE are doing are far more advanced than many of the countries in the region. Today, as an oil producer, for example, and I use this as a, just as an anecdote, we produce about two and, a two and a half million barrels of oil per day. Uh, most oil-producing countries depend largely on their revenues from oil and gas sector. But in the UAE, we've tried very hard and continue to try to diversify our economy. And our GDP percentage from oil and gas sector is actually below 35%. 65% of our GDP is from non-oil and gas. And the desire and the policy is to try to drive that number down even lower. And the idea is we recognize oil is a finite resource. It is not going to last forever. And building an economy that doesn't depend on a, on a resource that will run out in 100 or 200 years is where we see ourselves. But, but isn't it true that we, we saw in the recent past the near collapse of Dubai's economy uh, talk about that in the, in, the, in the context of what you just said, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and compare and contrast, if you will, Abu Dhabi and Dubai and explain the roles sure. they play in the Federation. In very short analogy, I would say Abu Dhabi is more like Washington, D.C. It is the base of government, it is more conservative, it's more traditional, and that's where really all the money is. Uh, Dubai is more like New York City. It's more vibrant, fast-paced, commercial, corporate, lots of tourism. Um, the reason I think Dubai is suffering economically is not unlike the reason the U.S. is suffering economically right now. Dubai put all their eggs in one basket and that basket was real estate. And when the real estate market crashed, a lot of their economy crashed. Now, what we've seen, I think, in the economic crisis is that no one is immune. And the countries that became most affected are the countries that were most globalized. So you pay a higher price when your economy is interdependent with the rest of the world. I believe Dubai is going to have some challenges that they're going to continue to deal with for the next few years. 
but fundamentally Dubai is still going to be a successful city because people still like the lifestyle there. People enjoy living there. It's, very, it's a very high level of infrastructure. Corporations all over the world find it to be a very good place to base their business in the region because it's convenient to hop and cover the region from there. And it is very liberal, it's very tolerant. In fact, I relate back to the Saudi question. We have a large, large number of Saudis who actually have moved their families to Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Uh, they will continue to work in Saudi and come to the UAE on weekends. Why? Because their families enjoy a different lifestyle, because their wives can drive their kids to, sc to school, and they can go to the shopping center. They can't do these things in Saudi Arabia. So Dubai has attracted not, people, not only people from the West and from corporate world, but also people from the region. Is the UAE a friend of the United States? Absolutely not, no. no. Uh, That's good. Uh, you could all Twitter, you could all tweet that right now. I think in light of what's going on in the region, and I d can't speak for the administration, but I don't believe there's another more reliable partner and ally in the region than the United Arab Emirates. Let me give you a few numbers. The UAE for the last four, to four years has been the U.S.'s largest export market, larger than Saudi, Egypt, and Israel. Um, the U.S. has approximately 2,000 military folks stationed in the UAE doing various types of operations in support of Iraq and Ira Afghanistan. UAE is the single largest military uh, purchaser of military equipment from the United States. We are in the, pro in the range of about $20 billion in the last two years of just U.S. military equipment purchases alone, and we have about another $20 billion in the pipeline over the next two years. Let me turn things around and let me just ask a question to the audience. Is anybody here aware or have any idea how many Middle Eastern countries are actually serving in Afghanistan right now? or has troops in Afghanistan? This is actually quite conflicting because it's both a source of pride and a source of shame at the same time. The UAE has been in Afghanistan since 2002. It's a source of pride for me to be there because you know I think we're doing the right thing and we're fighting so side by side with the Americans and everyone else. But it's very embarrassing to know that you're the, we're the only Arab country in Afghanistan. I think Afghanistan is not America's <coughs> issue. Afghanistan is the world's issue. And if we don't all sort of collaborate, <laughs> the guys outside the are people listening. People outside are, are more, yeah, 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 yeah. They're yeah. apparently people behind us. Uh, if we don't stabilize Pakistan, Afghanistan, and if we don't work with the government of Afghanistan, we all risk, not just the US, we all risk another type of 9-11. And if anyone believes that only the U.S. is target of these kinds of operations, you'd be sadly mistaken. I can tell you for a fact that we have foiled at least 25 different operations that are targeting the UAE in the last 10 years. So the U.S. is not the only target. We are just as much of a target. And if we don't do it, and if we don't cooperate and help the Afghanistan, we will be at the end of these operations just like you. You talk about your closeness to the United States, but there is a criticism within the Obama administration and with the Bush administration previously, uh, that the UAE is playing a bit of a double game when it comes to doing business with Iran. Uh, their widespread feeling in the Treasury Department, other places, that UAE is, uh, let's say, less than a religiously devoted to uh, a sanctions regime that the U.S., both administrations, Bush and Obama, want to see imposed on Iran. Can you talk about that? Sure. Because it seems to be a big, when, when I talk to people in government about the UAE, they say, yes, it's an ally, but, 
UAE and Iran have been traditional economic and regional neighbors and partners for hundreds and thousands of years. There's nothing that is going to say, no matter what kind of sanctions, the UAE must physically move from Iran. It's not like we just bought a house and we don't like it, we can move. We're going to be Iran's neighbors, whether we like it or not. That said, we have some major, major issues of divergence with Iran. And it's not just the sanctions, and it's not just US policy. Iran occupies three of UAE's islands since 1971. That is our biggest problem with them at this moment. And they refuse to go to any arbitration or the ICJ, so we have bilaterally a very big problem with them on that level. Second, we have some major concerns with their nuclear program. And for those of you who don't know, the reactor in Boucher is closer to most capitals in the Gulf than it is to Tehran. And I'm pretty sure that's not an accident. So from a safety and security standpoint, we have some major issues and concerns with their nuclear program, not only the transparency or the ultimate objective of what we think their nuclear program is. And last but not least, we are very concerned with Iran's behavior in the region. We see very strong Iranian influence in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Gaza, in Yemen, and in parts in Afghanistan. So without the first two issues, without the islands issue or the nuclear issue, Iran's behavior is problematic. And in, in the national interests of the UAE, Iranian influence must be contained. Now we've advocated very, very strongly that the UN sanctions be as tough and as direct and as uh, strong as possible. In but will hopes, you enforce compliance within the UAE business system? Absolutely. On the UN sanctions, we will comply just like we have with the past three to a T. There is not going to be an ounce of doubt whether the UAE will abide by any UN sanctions resolutions, whether it's on Iran or anyone else. I, I asked you before if you if UAE were a friend of America, but let me let me reverse it. Mm -hmm. Is America a friend to UAE? And the reason I ask this is twofold. One, mm -hmm. the Dubai Ports World controversy, um, in which, among other people, the, sec the current Secretary of State was very involved in arguing against giving that business to UAE uh, as a senator from New York. Uh, and, and two, do you believe that America has the UAE's back when it comes to Iran? Deal with the first one first and the second one second. Let me or the second one first <laughs> and the first one second. <laughs> Let me Give me freedom of first. choice. I've been working in government now for about 10 years. And the portfolio that has taken up most of my time, hands down, is the US-UAE portfolio. Our cooperation with the U.S. has increased dramatically in every sector possible in the past 10 years. If you look at the graph, if we graph it, it has been a constant upward trend, whether it's economical, political, social, healthcare, education, uh, trade. Everything has been increasing over the last 10 years. So if you take the 10-year graph, we're doing quite well. If you take the blip on the graph, which was Dubai Ports World, then yes, it was a very unfortunate incident. Can you explain the controversy for a minute, just in case people sure. don't remember? Uh, it was about six years ago. Uh, Dubai Ports World is a company that operates uh, ports in the UAE and in 19 different countries. And they were on a major expansion move, and they bought this company called uh, P&O. Um, and it's, it's a British company that operates some ports in the US in six major cities. So basically, to, to really boil it down, this became a very internal political U.S. debate where the Democrats attacked the Republicans for allowing an Arab country to manage ports in the U.S. And this was essentially a chance for the Democrats
to beat up the Republicans on an, on an issue that the Republicans tend to usually use as their strong suit, security. And so it became an internal battle. I think there was, it was really very little to do with the UAE. I actually had a, a senior uh, Democratic official, and who shall remain nameless, tell me, look, you gave us this on a silver platter. If it was any other country, we would have done exactly the same thing. It was purely internal politics. We got a chance to go at the Republicans, and that's what we did. So the UAE was a collateral damage and something internal in the US. Now, the lessons we learned is that the US really doesn't understand the UAE. This is six years ago. So we put a poll, and we asked people, and one of the major questions, and this was kind of the, the barometer of the poll for me, was what is your overall impression of the UAE? Favorable, unfavorable, no impression. 40% said no impression. 30% said favorable, 30% said unfavorable. So if you look at the pie graph, what I saw was 70% potential for having a favorable impression of the UAE. And that's when we launched a public diplomacy program to really raise the awareness of people in the United States about who the UAE is, what we do, what our policies are. And the more we tell people, the more people are surprised that, hey, the UAE are pretty much aligned on us on almost all the issues. And I'll give you another example. Two weeks ago, I sat in a strategic uh, dialogue discussion with the United States, both Pentagon and the State Department, and we had a delegation mirrored at the same level from our side. So we went through the litany of issues, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran. We went, th we went through everything, and at the end of two days, there was nothing we disagreed on. We were aligned on every policy issue there is in the Middle East. Uh, I think tactics may differ, but in terms of overall outlook, we're always but on wait, the same But wait, but wait, let's just, let me sharpen the second half of my question and ask you this point blank. Do you want the United States to stop the Iranian nuclear program by force? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we are at risk of an Iranian nuclear program far more than you are at risk. You have two Me, oceans. Jeffrey Goldberg, or me, or, uh, representative of the Jewish people, <laughs> or me? In the United States. The United States. Okay, the just United, checking. The United States. I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> <laughs> At 7,000 miles away, and with two oceans bordering you, an Iranian nuclear threat does not threaten continental United States. So you may threaten your assets in the region. It will threaten the peace process. It will threaten balance of power. It will threaten everything else, but it will not threaten you. So are you suggesting that, that the leadership of the UAE is like Bibi Netanyahu, but more? I'm suggesting that I think out of every country in the region, UAE is the most vulnerable to Iran. Our military, who has existed for the past 40 years, wake up, dream, breathe, eat, sleep, the Iranian threat. It's the only conventional military threat our military plans for, trains for, equips for. That's it. There's no other threat. There's no country in the region that parlays a threat to the UAE. It's only Iran. And so, yes, it is very much in our interest that, that Iran does not gain nuclear technology. Okay, so let's play this out a little mm -hmm. bit more. George W. Bush didn't take out the Iranian nuclear program by force. Do you have any expectation at all that Barack Obama, who was elected not to attack another Muslim country, do you have any, do you have any uh, expectation at all that Barack Obama will, if sanctions fail, move to a more militant posture on Iran? It's, that's the, that's the million-dollar question. Right, that's think, why I'm asking I don't it. think anybody knows. <laughs> but I take a guess. I believe that if it comes down to it, there's going to be some very serious people sitting in a room and drawing the line that 
people must respect. And we need to figure out and we need to be told what that line is, if you're willing or if you're not willing. Because there are many countries in the region who, if they, if they lack of insurance that the U.S. is willing to confront Iran, they will start running for cover towards Iran. Small, rich, vulnerable countries in the region do not want to be the ones who stick their finger in the big bully's eye if nobody's going to come to their support. So wait, you're saying you would ally yourself with Iran rather than be attacked by Iran? The UAE is probably the last country that will ever do that, simply because we have a historical... Well, Israel will probably be the last country to ever do that. I think there are a lot of other Arab countries who you risk losing to Iran than the UAE. And again, I stress the point. I think whatever the U.S. decides to do needs to be very seriously conveyed to the people in the region so they can decide which way they want to go. That's pretty drastic. Do you, do you, would come back to your impressions of President Obama after 18 months or so in, in office. Do you feel that this administration understands the stakes on the Iranian question the way you understand them? I mean, I asked this for just a person we both know in, in the administration, said, you know, it's not a break point in history if Iran goes nuclear. It can be contained. It doesn't mean that we've lost our, uh, a 30-year war with Iran, and he went on in this vein, perfectly logical, but it doesn't seem to correspond to the way you and, and many of your Arab allies in the Gulf see this problem. Again, it, countries in the region view the Iran threat very differently. I can only speak for the UAE, but talk of containment and deterrence really concerns me and makes me very nervous. What, why should I be led to believe that deterrence or containment will work? Iran doesn't have a nuclear power now, but we're unable to contain them and their behavior in the region. What makes me think that once they have a nuclear program, we're going to be more successful in containing them? Can we contain Iranian influence with Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Iranian and Iraqi elections? Again, this is without a nuclear weapon. Let me ask you a question, Jeff, because you know this, su- this subject very well. Our efforts on the peace process, how are they going to be affected if, Iranian, if Iran has a nuclear weapon? But let me ask you a question <laughs> and follow it up with another question. Uh, no, no, no. Be- this, this, is, this, is, this is a key question, and, and I'm just trying to, to probe. You talk about you have big strategic meetings with high administration officials, and you're perfectly in concert, but it sounds like on some issues you're actually, you're actually not. And, and, and by way of answering your question very indirectly, I will ask you the following, which is this. That was a very long sentence, by the way. Uh, <laughs> The Obama administration argues for linkage. They argue that it will be easier to deal with Iran if there's progress made on the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. Many Israelis and many Sunni Arabs, moderates, argue back to the Obama administration the opposite, that there is linkage, but the linkage runs the other way. Until you neutralize Hezbollah and Hamas, which are both Iranian proxies, more or less, until you neutralize the threat of a rising Iran, that you're not going to make progress on, on the peace process. Right now you have a Palestinian polity that is divided between a moderate pro-Western group uh, and the West Bank and, 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 a, and a group in, in, in Gaza that leans toward Iran. If you neutralize Iran, then maybe there's progress to be made. So I'm, and I don't know the, the answer to your question, but but this is what I hear from the region as opposed to what I hear from the administration. 
We Which way does the linkage run? For us, we believe that progress on the peace process will ultimately lead to a better landscape for dealing with Iran. Once you, not achieve, but let's say get close to a Palestinian state, Hamas and Hezbollah's reason to exist is a resistance movement. They are there because they want a Palestinian state. You take their argument away from them once you create a Palestinian state. And there are leaders in the region who are supporting both of these movements who have told us privately, I will no longer be in a position to support Hamas if there's a Palestinian state. But with all due respect, Hamas and Hezbollah don't necessarily want a Palestinian state on the West Bank and Gaza. They want a Palestinian state in lieu of Israel. So wouldn't that, doesn't that change the dynamic a little bit? The closer, the closer moderates come to achieving a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, the more frightened and the more active the radicals become. But that empowers our argument. Once there is a Palestinian state, we can pressure leaders who are supporting Hamas and Hezbollah, be it in various countries, that you no longer need to do this. And there's no way, we all recognize that Israel is always going to exist. We, always re we recognize that U.S. is always going to support Israel. These are facts of life. We're not going to change them. There are a few, there are a few who use this as a political platform to gain support and recruit and breed more instability in the region. But the fact, of, the fact of life remains that Israel will be a country living side by side with the Palestinians. And the more, the quicker we can neutralize the extreme elements of Hamas and Hezbollah, who, by the way, are, are somewhat fractured, by the way, uh, I think the better it is we, to create a sustainable landscape of countries in the region to really deal with the bigger problem to us, which is Iran. Look, Palestine doesn't threaten anyone. I don't even think they threaten Israel. Iran threatens the whole region. Iran threatens Israel and the Arab countries. And so it's important to view the two threats and really the light of, of the priorities they represent to the countries. Well, let, let, me, let me ask you the question this way. What would Israel have to do to gain the recognition of the UAE? which, of course, would help the, the, the peace process. I mean, Barack Obama went to the Saudis last year and asked for some symbolic gestures on the peace process, giving El Al overflight sure. uh, of Saudi Arabia, and he came back empty-handed. Where is UAE in all of this? The minute they sign a peace deal with the Palestinians, the UAE, and many countries in the region will sign an agreement recognizing Israel that same day. Now, people ask me, what kind of peace deal? And I, my response is, it's not up to me to decide. That's up for the Palestinians. I cannot be more Palestinian than the Palestinians. If they are willing to agree to whatever Israel offers, then we're willing to recognize it. It's that simple. Uh, the minute they make an agreement, and, and that's not the only piece. I think the UAE plays a part, but there's also something out there called the Arab Peace Initiative, which says all 22 Arab countries will recognize Israel the minute Israel agree agrees to the 1967 borders. So it's not just the UAE. I think there is an opportunity there for Israel to establish relationship with 22 countries. Uh, King Abdullah always tells us that you know, more countries recognize North Korea than they do Israel. So this is, he calls it the 57 state solution. You will, you will gain relationship, diplomatic relations with Israel with 57 different countries the minute you sign a peace deal with Palestine. And if you don't think that is a priority to them, and if you don't think that will actually enhance your ability to deal with Iran, then I think we're looking at the issue backwards. Come back to uh, come back to Iran for a minute, and in the, in the particular UAE context, because you you introduced here uh, a, a fairly extraordinary concept. When when people who foreign, follow foreign policy hear the expression existential threat, 
we, we, we automatically assume that we're talking about the existential threat posed by Iran to Israel. But you're talking about an existential threat posed to an Arab country. Tell me, how does it play out? Let's assume, from your perspective, uh, the worst, that Iran reaches nuclear breakout capacity in some sort of w way that everybody understands, whether it's through the most dramatic way a test or, or that all the world's intelligence agencies agree now Iran is a nuclear power. How does that, what happens the next day in the UAE? I think in the region, let's start with the region. I think what the first thing you will do is you'll see a series of nuclear programs being instigated by various countries. And most likely candidates are going to be Egypt, Syria, Turkey, and Saudi. Now, you have a peaceful nuclear program. We have a very peaceful nuclear Would program. Would you ever consider flipping that to a military program? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, we've gone to great lengths in our nuclear program and in the 123 agreement with the United States to prove and commit to everyone that this is purely for energy production needs. And it's the only nuclear program in the world that is within its both policy, its nuclear law, and our 123 agreement have voluntarily foregone the right to enrich uranium or reprocess pr plutonium. And those are the only two those are the only two mechanisms to really convert a civil nuclear program into a military nuclear program. We've said to prove to the world that we have no intention, we're willing to do away with it in exchange for a fuel cycle from international standards. So the UAE is seeking energy. Our energy is actually forecast, our energy demand is forecast to double by the year 2020. And short of the energy supplies that we have, we had to go for nuclear energy. So that's the reason okay. why we embarked on that program. But I think the other countries will like the ambiguity of having a civil program that may or may not eventually go into a nuclear so program. So you're talking about the potential, the, the, the greatest explosion in nuclear proliferation in history in the world's most volatile region. Absolutely. That's the day after. Absolutely. Let me come back to this one question. Do you think President Obama gets that? I do. I you really do. do? I really do. But to be honest, I think President Obama has inherited the worst hand any president in the United States has inherited in recent history. So I am not... Go back and could tell, give, give a couple of I reasons. I like the people in the back because it seems like they're the only ones listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if said this way. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's that they're all from, the, from Abu Dhabi. <laughs> you don't understand that. They've, they've been flown in from Abu Dhabi <laughs> special for this lunch. Now, I think President Obama has inherited two very difficult campaigns in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's inherited the worst financial crisis since 1929. He is now dealing with it, what seems to be an unfixable oil spill, not just environmentally, but economically, from an energy standpoint. So President Obama has his hands full. Do I think he recognized the threat from Iran? Yes, I do. Do I think he has very limited options and not necessarily a lot of ability to fix it? Yes. I think President Obama is just constrained with the lack of resources and tools at his disposal. And if, if he's heard anything from the Arab leaders that he talks to, most of them, and I'm fairly sure that King Abdullah, when he was here, mentioned the same thing, for him to really make progress on the Iran issue and to deal with extremism and to deal with terrorism in the region, to deal with radicalized homegrown terrorism in the U.S., you need to address the peace process. That is the one core issue everyone tends to blame, and that's what they people hang all their problems on. Well, the Palestinians are, you know, 
they're, they don't have a country, they're abused, they're oppressed, and the U.S. always sides with, with Israel. So the sooner U.S. appears to be objective and impartial and create a Palestinian state, we take that argument away from everyone. And that is in everyone's Why would that stop Iran from developing a nuclear weapon? It won't stop. It will get you all the Arab countries more aligned on contra- containing Iran because now they use Palestine as an excuse. And the Palestine issue is, is a deep political problem. And I'm not saying it's only the U.S.'s fault. I'm saying it is as much Israel and Palestine's fault for not making any progress on it themselves. But lack of their kind of commitment, the U.S. needs to step in and say, you need to do this. And you need to do this for your sake, for our sake, and for the region's sake. Let me, uh, we're going to go to questions in a, in a couple of minutes. But let me just ask one final question, which is, which is a sort of uh, a refinement of the would you support a, an American military action against, against Iran? Would you support an Israeli military action against Iran? Because you have, for the first time in history, there is a hopeful kind of, uh, of moment here uh, buried under this sort of apocalyptic moment, which is that you have the interests of Arab moderate states and Israel aligning uh, vis-a-vis Iran in a way that they've never aligned before, that's, all, that's a problem because you haven't seen, you would think that that would cause some progress in the peace process, and it hasn't. But you have this, you have this natural alignment. So the question is, would you support, secretly or not secretly, an Israeli strike on an Iranian nuclear program? I'm, I'm glad we're finishing off with a light question. Yeah. Uh, no. Let me answer it this way. Iran, a a, a military attack on Iran by whomever would be a disaster. But Iran with a nuclear weapon would be a bigger disaster. I think that was a yes. (laughs) But I'm not sure. But I'm not sure. Um, Why don't we go to questions, because I'm sure there's a lot of things that we haven't covered. Um, There's only a mic here, so maybe what you can do is just stand up and scream and identify yourself and then scream. I'm going to repeat the question. Two questions. Uh, maybe we're going to see battery power cars here. Maybe the demand for oil is not going to keep increasing like everybody says. Is your country thinking about maybe you should be selling more oil rather than less because it's going to be worth less in the ground going, uh, going forward? That's a great question, and Could thank you, you for the re- setup. Repeat the question. Oh, so they, uh, the question. I'm only good at answering. The qu- <laughs> The question was, if I understand it correctly, that, that with the increase in, in if we go to electric cars, oil is not going to be worth as much, so why aren't you pumping more? No. The UAE, That's a very optimistic question. <laughs> well, I go back to my earlier point, and that is the UAE knows that the oil and gas resources we own are actually finite, and depending on which assessment you read, it's going to run out one day or another. What the UAE has done, and this is actually one of the things we're very proud of, is we have per capita or per, per country, we have invested or allocated more money into R&D for clean energy than any country in the world. We've committed $15 billion in the next five years to basically either acquire our clean energy companies or invest in R&D. And anyone who's heard of a company called Mazdar, that's kind of the 800-pound the, the gorilla on the clean air and the clean energy sector. And our view is in that five or ten years, Mazdar will be one of the world's largest clean energy enterprises. So we're working very hard. In fact, our policy is to, we've mandated our governments to come up with a solution where 
by 2030, at least 7% of our energy generation comes from renewable energy. So that's a goal we've set for ourselves. Um, the other part of the answer I'd like to uh, mention is, this is a very not well-known fact. The UAE produces about two and a half million barrels of oil a day. Not a single drop of it gets exported west. None of it goes to the US, Europe, anywhere west. All of our oil goes to Japan, Korea, and various other countries in Asia. We take the revenues that we make from our oil sales east, and we invest it all around the world, much of it comes into the US. So the US is actually a benefic beneficiary of our oil revenues that we sell to east. Uh, in fact, the, US, the UAE has, I can't mention the numbers, but a significant amount of investment in the US. And in the last year alone, despite the financial crisis, UAE entities put at least $10 billion of investment into the US in various projects. One of them is a, is a chip manufacturing facility in upstate New York that we are doing in conjunction with a company called AMD, and another $4.5 billion investment in city center in Las Vegas with MGM. So that money went into the U.S. about last year when the economy was very, very difficult. And you're also giving $10 billion to the Aspen Institute. <laughs> <laughs> Walter and just raised his hand. Yeah. <laughs> and taking out 10 million subscriptions to the Atlantic, by the way. Uh, yes. I think it's a cost-benefit analysis. We have, we have. Did everybody hear the question? <laughs> the question, the question has to do with the Arab, with the, the so-called Arab street. There's a common perception that any attack on Iran would be received very negatively by the Arab street. Uh, what she's pointing out is that what, what the ambassador is saying somewhat contradicts that perception. In that there might be many Arabs who are pleased with some sort of military action against Iran. It's, again, it's a cost-benefit analysis, and I think despite the large amount of trade we do with Iran, which is close to $12 billion, uh, not as much as what we do with the U.S. Um, there will be consequences, and there will be a backlash, and there will be problems and people protesting and rioting and very unhappy with that there is an <coughs> outside force attacking a Muslim country. That is going to happen no matter what. But if you're asking me, am I willing to live with that versus living with a nuclear Iran, my answer is still the same. We cannot live with a nuclear Iran. I am willing to absorb what takes place <coughs> at the expense of the security of the UAE. Uh, are there any questions from the Abu Dhabi delegation back here? <laughs> Anybody have anything? Why don't you come up here and ask your question? While you're doing that, let me call on, on you back there real quick. Yeah. I think this was, um, the question was uh, my assessment on what's taking place in Iran in terms of the resistance or the green movement in opposition that we saw in the, since the last elections in June. And um, I was very amazed to see the amount of people who are willing to put their lives in danger by going out on the street, protesting, and really expressing themselves 
against a regime that obviously had no qualms about oppressing them, putting them in jail, beating them, torturing them, raping them. They knew this was going to happen. They knew this was a risk the minute they stepped on on the street, and millions of people still did it. To me, that was very admirable. Now, the status of it today, I was in the UAE two months ago, and I asked for an intel briefing on exactly that, on the status of the Green Movement and the internal political situation. And the first answer I got from my briefer was, the Green Movement is officially dead. It has absolutely no chance of being revived. People are staying in their homes. It has been officially suppressed. Mm -hmm. So it's sad to say, but again, the regime was put in a corner after the elections. And what we saw is the mindset of the regime and that what they're willing to do to preserve themselves. And this is a regime that is all about self-preservation. And they're not, they're not reluctant to put their own people in danger or to put them in jail. And, and, and this is exactly, I go back to your earlier question, this is why a regime of that nature with nuclear weapons is simply unacceptable for us to live with. It's just not, it, the United States may be able to live with it, we can't. It's, it's hard to say. That's the, the question was, would it have been beneficial for the Green Movement if the U.S. had been more supportive or outspoken in its support? It's, it's hard to speculate, but I think the first thing the regime would have done if U.S. Land, land voices support publicly or privately was they were going to basically criticize the movement as being a Western-backed movement. It no longer became an internal movement against the government. It became the West's idea or policy of really removing the government, and that would have immediately discredited the movement. So uh, it was a tough decision. I don't know if by standing by going to their support, you would have helped them. There's a chance you may have actually hurt them as well. Not that the result has been any different, but for better or worse, unfortunately, what we saw as an opportunity is no longer there. Uh, I think we have time for two more questions. There's yes, ma'am. Uh, let me let me repeat that. Um, the the question is, isn't it ironic that uh, Israel might be this is her word, not mine, the savior of the Arabs? Um, never words that have come out of my mouth before. <laughs> um, uh, for dealing in some sort of militant way with the Iranian program when they when Israel will be condemned afterward, I think is what you're saying uh, for taking that condemned publicly for taking that that same action. Israel's already being condemned for everything they do anyway. <laughs> I, I don't think it's fair, absolutely not. I, I think Israeli behavior drives a lot of reaction to Israel and to a lot of comments made by Israel. Uh, I hope that today's meeting with the president uh, ends up being more successful, and I hope that the peace process gets back on track because that's the only way Israel will put itself in a position where it's not constantly attacked. Uh, Iran issue aside, Israel is, you know, lives in a very difficult neighborhood, and like ourselves, you know, we deal with the same threats. But I think it's important for Israel to, re to recognize what its priorities are and what, it's, it, what is in its best interest. 
And what is in best interest, I think, is a good relationship with the U.S. and eventually achieving a solution with the Palestinians so that the countries in the region can recognize it. Uh, and there was back there. I don't know. That's it's <laughs> a difficult question to speculate on. Also, but that's above his pay grade. That's above his pay grade. There was a question in that all the way. Yeah. I haven't seen anything to lead me to yeah. believe that Russia will take a very more. Proactive. All right. Let me just go. There's one question in the back. He's been waiting patiently. Let yes. me go there. Can you repeat the question? Because I don't. Uh, the question was, uh, why is clean energy the focus of your innovation economy? Yeah. Because, like I said, you know, oil is going to run out one day, and we won't have any gas or you know, oil or crude to power up our power plants. You know, despite the financial crisis, our economy is still going to grow at a 3% to 4% uh, growth rate. And all our projects, and I know the, the media has debated which projects are continuing and which projects are canceled. I can safely assure you that all the government-backed projects, all the infrastructure projects, the universities, the railroads, the nuclear program, <coughs> Mazdar City, these are you know, very, very large price tag projects and they're all going on as planned. Now not only does that require a lot of money, but it also requires a lot of energy. And like I said, the energy forecast for the UAE is set to double by the year 2020. And unless we start exploiting you know, nuclear power, renewable power, we're not going to stand a chance to make sh to, to really enact our, our economic development policies. So it's a way of providing a tool to allow us to continue to grow the way we're planning to grow. This has been great. Thank you very, very much for coming. And thank you, Mr. Ambassador. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.